0: As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethage and Bethany at the mount of Olives Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them Go to the village ahead of you and just as you enter it you will find a colt tied there until no one has ever oh which no one has ever ridden untie it and bring it here If anyone asks you why are you doing this say The Lord needs it, and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing, untying that colt? They answered and said Jesus had told them to. And the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus, they threw their cloaks over it. He sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Mark 11, 1 through 10
1: So it's Palm Sunday today. It's always uh, an exciting Sunday. I remember as a, as a child, always getting your little swords in church was always uh, a nice touch. Uh, I was very much a little boy, and of course now I have three little boys, so that seems to fit well. Um, but there's just kind of these fun memories. You're getting into the, the week of Holy Week, and, and it's kind of uh, unique, and many people will probably travel, spend some time with family, and it's just uh, can be a beautiful uh, time, and, and here we've been doing this sermon series through Lent, and if you're the first time you know, with us today, you won't be lost, but, but we've been doing this series on the priesthood uh, all the way through the Old Testament, and now today we've gotten to the New Testament. So we've kind of started uh, in, right in Genesis, you know, Adam and Eve, uh, in the garden, in this kind of holy temple kind of thing, or rather what the temple was kind of modeled after, and they were given this. Uh, sort of priestly role there, and then it continues on, and we hear um, about how they kind of get removed from, from this temple, if you will, uh, due to their own sin, and, and uh, this relationship is fractured, and it, and it continues to lead all the way through the Old Testament, and it leads right to today, and today we finally get to Jesus. So this is a, this is a good part of the sermon series. Uh, so if, again, if this is your first week with us, uh, you joined right at the right time. So uh, good timing there. Um, but yeah, again, let's get further into this, uh, a little recap here. So, so even with Adam and Eve, as I mentioned, they're kicked out of the garden, but they're given this sliver of hope. There, there's this, this phrase that God tells them, this, this command that God tells them, and he, and he says that one day, one of their descendants will come. And that descendant will defeat evil. And it will restore humanity kind of into this rightful role, what they were created to be in the first place. And and we're told that not only will this descendant destroy the evil, but this descendant will both be the one that destroys it and will be a sacrifice. He will crush the head of the snake and he will get bit in the same process. So here we are. uh, He will crush the head uh, and he will get bit. And, And then we read on and there's this kind of wreckage of the world again we're still in genesis here and and the world is this difficult place and there's a lot of pain and there's a lot of suffering and and in the midst of it we come across this this new couple adam and eve or not adam and Eve. sorry i already talked about them Uh, we talked about this other couple abraham and sarah Uh, and and abraham and sarah are told that it will be through this family that it will be through them that this descendant will come, that God is going to do something special, uh, not just through all of humanity, but through this particular family. And we hear that that family grows, and it grows, and it grows, and it becomes the Israelite people. And, and of course, very quickly going over it, they, they go into slavery in Egypt, they get rescued out of that. Uh, God meets them in this really special way, and part of this promise that God gives them, or this command, is that God wants to make this family a nation of priests. So this whole series we've been talking about priests, and here's my really quick definition of what a priest is in the Bible. So this is different than maybe we use it in our culture today. But in the Bible, what a priest is, is that there's a God, and, and there's a, he's holy, and he's perfect, and then there's, there's people, and there's the rest of humanity, and there's this big gap in between, and there's this need uh, for people to kind of uh, bridge this gap between a holy God and a hurting world. And there's a certain role that does that in the Bible, and they're called the priests. So they're kind of these doorway people. They stand in the middle there, and they take the blessings of God, and they give that to the people, and they take the sacrifices of the people, and they bring that to God, and somehow it all kind of mediates through them. That. So that's what's going on here. Is here the Israelites are told that not only will this be a role for a certain person, but now God says, I want to make your entire nation a nation of priests. All of you will stand in the gap between, between all of the people of the world and a holy God. And we don't have to read very long before we read that this that did not turn out exactly how uh, it could have on paper, if you will. Uh, it makes sense uh, when you plan it all out and then you add humans into the mix and it quickly, quickly breaks down. And and even the the priestly group of the Israelites, within the first stories of them being priests, fail in radical ways. They actually don't lead the people towards God. They end up leading the people towards worshipping a false idol. They they lead the people away from God. And it continues on and on and on. And we're told uh, right before the story of David that there is a need for a new kind of priest. That this system is not working, that, there's, that this will need to be done away with, and there will be a new kind of priest. And this priest uh, is going to be able to stand in this gap, and they're going to be able to, to give the sacrifice to God, and they're also going to be able to give the blessing from God uh, down to people. And then we're introduced into King David, and it sounds really promising. And as we read through, we, we look at it and we say, could, could this King David, could he be the one? Now, if you weren't here last week, he's not. (laughs) Spoiler alert, King David is not the one. He also falls short of this. He he kind of reflects it in some ways. There's parts of what he does that that make sense into this role, Uh, but he is not the one. But he does receive another promise from God. This is 2 Samuel 7, verse 16. God speaking to David, he says, Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Obviously, King David does not live forever, but his house, his descendants, his, his royal line, we are told, will be established forever. It will rule forever. And there are many descendants of David, as we read through. Some are good kings. Others are not. Most are not. And then the line seems to disappear. And long story short, then we end the Old Testament. And it leaves us with this hanging feeling that, that a lot of these promises still are not fulfilled. There's still something more. There's still something more that's supposed to happen. Who is this promised one? Who is, who is this one that will crush the head of the snake? Uh, who is this descendant of Adam and Eve? Who, who is this descendant of Abraham and Sarah that will be the one? And then we enter into the New Testament, and today is Palm Sunday. So just a little background on our text for today. Again, we're in Mark 11. On Palm Sunday, Jesus and his closest followers, they come to the great city of Jerusalem. And they're coming for a celebration. They're coming for the Passover celebration. And and by Friday, the crowds that greet him today... By Friday, those very same crowds will be yelling out, crucify him. But today, they have a different uh, tune. Today, they are welcoming him. They're welcoming him as their king. As this coming king, and it's clear with what they say, that they, they view him as this coming king in the line of David, this one that was promised, this one that was to come, and, and we skipped over it, but many of the prophets in the Old Testament talk about this. They, they give visions of the future, of what this king will be like, and and the people are ready for it. They're so ready for it. And they look at this Jesus coming, uh, and they are, they're ready for him to be the one. But during this time, the Jewish people, they're not, they're not free. They're under the Roman Empire. So the Roman Empire is vast. It's, it's very large at this time. It's very, very powerful. Um, a massive military machine. And they rule over this entire region. And how the Romans kind of did it, if you're not that familiar with, with Roman uh, politics, I guess, if that's not your area of expertise in life. Um, the, the Romans would kind of let you kind of rule yourself somewhat. They would still be over everything, but they would put uh, maybe kind of a puppet king in place, and then they would uh, kind of let you deal with your own stuff as a group. And then if something got bad enough, then they would come in. And often by the time the Romans came in, they came in with their army. But they kind of let you do your own thing. As long as you paid your taxes, as long as you said that Caesar was Lord, as long as you uh, did what you were supposed to do, you can kind of rule yourselves uh, somewhat. And this is what the Jewish people are doing. So they have an appointed king, uh, but really the day-to-day governing of what's going on is being done by the priests. A lot of people don't realize that when we read through the New Testament. There's a a lot going on here, but the day-to-day governing is being done through the priests, and there's a certain high priest. His name is Caiaphas, uh, and he's he's kind of the one in charge. And we'll talk about him a lot next week. But many, many people, not just in this area, but around the entire Roman world, many people are not happy with this arrangement. They're not happy with this this large amount of, uh, of taxes they pay and how they are uh, pressed under this. And, and there's this growing idea of rebellion that's all around. And there's been little rebellions that have been popping up all around the empire. And, and Rome quickly comes and they crush it. But make no mistake, as we enter into Palm Sunday, the Romans are very aware of the potential of this kind of celebration. In Jerusalem at this time, best estimates, it's about 50,000 people live in Jerusalem. But during Passover, it would easily double in size. 100,000, 120,000 people would be in the city. Now, it doesn't take a military genius to realize that the first step into starting a rebellion is to build an army. And what a better opportunity to build an army than when your city going to grow anyway. And and we might not pick it up on it. You know, we're we're reading so many years later, we don't see necessarily the tension that's going on, but I I guarantee you the Romans had their eyes on Jerusalem. And not only did the Romans have their eyes on Jerusalem, but the people, the leaders of Jerusalem, these priests, they were very aware of the Roman eyes that were on Jerusalem. And yet, here we are, and there's this coming king that is riding into town. Can you feel the tension that's happening here? It's like this pot of water and it's been boiling. It's been boiling for many years. And it's, it's right at that edge. It's about to boil over. There's about to be this explosion. And, and all the priests want to do is just, just stop their entire society from getting wiped out by the Romans. They're not as evil as we sometimes like to make them. All they want to do is is hold back this boil. Don't let the city go into rebellion because what's going to happen is Romans are going to come and they're going to destroy everything. And they do. They do it later. 70 AD. The Romans do come in a rebellion and they destroy everything and they tear down the temple. So so this fear, this fear is not uh, unfounded. And they see Jesus coming and and he's riding on this donkey and the people are so excited because the people think that he's this long-awaited Messiah, that he's this, this conquering king. They think he's going to be this new king in the line of David, that he's going to come, he's going to throw off the Roman occupation, he's going to raise up this new Jewish kingdom that he's going to crush their enemies. They are ready for him. They are ready for this mighty military leader, and they're ready to fight alongside him. And we are, again, we're reading so many years later that we look at him, and we're like, what are they thinking? (laughs) This doesn't sound like the Jesus that I know. Well, let's look back here. This is Psalm 2 talks about this victorious Messiah who is going to defeat the pagans. By the way, Romans are pagans. (laughs) Here we are, Psalm 2. I'm just going to read the whole thing for you. See what you pick up on. See what stands out to you. Starting in verse 1, why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up, and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. By the way, Zion's Jerusalem. Verse 7, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession." You will break them with a rod of iron, and you will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you king, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, or he will be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction. His wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. This is the Messiah that they're ready for. This is the one they've been praying for. This is the one that that they want to come. They, They read into these texts and they see themselves. They see their hurts. They see their sufferings. They see their pain. And they look out and they're ready for this warrior king. In the line of David that's going to come. And he's going to throw off the enemies. He's going to destroy them all. This is harsh language. There's a lot going on here. Again, he's talking about Zion, his holy mountain. That is Jerusalem. And here we are in Jerusalem, Palm Sunday. It talks about the Lord's anointed. Anointing is what you would do to a king. It means pouring oil on. It's the word that we have for Messiah. That's anointed. And here he comes, this king in the line of David. And he comes riding into Jerusalem. And the people look back at, at verses like Psalm 2 and they say, you know, the, God's enemies, they're, they're laughing at it. These Romans, they think they're so strong. They think they're so powerful, but they don't know who our God is. And God will will lift up this new and powerful king, and he will crush them, and the people are ready. They are ready for it. They are right there. They will take up arms if he asks for it. It's not just here in Psalm 2. It continues on and on. One of the most fascinating ones is in Daniel chapter 2. So Daniel is a prophet. He's living in exile. He's in Babylon. Um, And in Daniel chapter 2, just to summarize it, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon has a dream that he needs interpreted. He calls together all the wise uh, men and and tells them, you know, who can interpret this dream? And they say, none of us can do it. Uh, We can't interpret this dream. And then King Nebuchadnezzar, just to show you a little bit of who he is, Says, okay, then all the wise men in all of the country will die. You will all be killed if none of you can interpret this dream. Here's the dream. There's a statue, and it's made of many different materials. Very big, it's very impressive. The head of the statue is made of pure gold. In the chest and the arms are silver. In the belly and the thighs are bronze, and the the legs, we're told, are iron. In the feet are partially iron and partially clay. And in the vision, in the dream, a meteor comes, or what what it likes to call, this is how the Old Testament describes meteors, it says a stone that is not cut by human hands, I kind of like that. So a stone not cut by human hands comes and it destroys the stature. And it embeds itself right there on the ground. And the statue kind of fades away. And then the stone itself starts to grow and grow and grow. And it becomes the size of a mountain. And then King Nebuchadnezzar wakes up. All right, anyone know what's going on? <laughs> All right, this is Daniel chapter 2. It's actually really fascinating. So, so Daniel is considered one of these wise men uh, at this point, And Daniel says, I can't interpret it, but through God. If God lets me, I will be able to interpret it. So King Nebuchadnezzar brings Daniel forward, and Daniel is able, uh, through God, to say what, what this dream means. Here's what it is. So the different materials that make up the statue represent different empires. So there's one giant statue. It's kind of kind of looking over the whole earth and it's it's represented by different empires made of different materials. It's almost like the statue itself is a timeline. Daniel tells him that Babylon, this very kingdom that he's in, King Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom is the head. It is the head of gold. And that next will come another kingdom. That'll be the silver chest and the silver arms. And most people recognize this to be Persia, the Persian Empire that comes later. Next, we have the bronze belly and the bronze thighs. And we're told uh, later on, many people, you know, they look at the bronze and they see that as the Greek Empire. That this represents Alexander the Great, who conquers this entire region, takes it over, um, known to many as the height of the Bronze Empire. Um, And yet, here it is, bronze. The legs are iron, and it's said to be the Romans. And now the last one is really interesting, and there's a bunch of different interpretations, and it all depends on which way you want to go. But the last one is the feet, and it's made of both iron and clay. And we are told that it is a divided kingdom. So Many people will say it's, it's the later Roman Empire when Rome gets split east and west and there's, uh, there's kind of the Romans out of Rome and there's the Romans um, that are coming out of the east. Other people say, no, this, this is actually further in time. This is talking about more like our modern world and kind of what leads up to our modern world where there's, there's many different kingdoms. There isn't like one Babylon you know, looking over everyone and it's kind of more divided and, and it's kind of the nations right now. But what is clear is that the meteor is the Messiah. Again, this is the Messiah that they all want. They want the Messiah that is the meteor, and he's coming down, and he's going to just crush that statue. That statue is just going to disintegrate. It's not going to exist anymore. It's just going to go off into powder. And then what happens to the meteor? It starts to grow itself, and it becomes as large as a mountain. And that's his kingdom. Here, Daniel 2, I'll just read right from it. Daniel 2, 44 through 45. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will send up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those who, kingdoms and bring them to an end. But it itself will endure Forever. You know, that should stand out to us. Remember that promise to David that we he have a kingdom that will endure forever. Verse 45. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut um, out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, and the bronze, and the clay, and the silver, and the gold to pieces. Again, this is all on their mind. This is their expectation of who this Messiah is, who this coming king, uh, who he will be. He will be the one that crushes the pagan nations around them. They will not lord over them anymore, and their eyes are on Rome, of course. And he will set up this new, everlasting Jewish kingdom of, that, that will rule with might, but it also uh, will be uh, this glorious place. And that's all good, but we also need to look at who Jesus says he is. Jesus is also reading the same Old Testament. In Matthew 16, Jesus comes to his disciples and he says, Who do you say that I am? And Peter, being kind of the leader of the group, Peter speaks up and he says, You are the Messiah. You are the Son of the living God. This is Matthew 16, 16. And they're not wrong. They're right. But it's also important, look at what Jesus teaches next. The very next thing Jesus goes into teaching is about what kind of Messiah he's going to be. So even Peter here, you know, there's a good good chance Peter is expecting this other Messiah. He's expecting this warrior, this one that's going to come, and he's going to crush uh, the enemies, and he's going to take over the world, and they're just ready to just kind of ride in with him. And we see that through the, through the disciples' stories. You know, which one of us will be at your right hand and will be at your left when you come into your glory? They're not talking about heaven. <laughs> so Jesus starts talking about what kind of Messiah he's going to be. He points to something else. He points to a different text, a different whole series in the Old Testament, from the prophet Isaiah. And it starts in Isaiah 53. And it starts talking about this king who's, who's going to come into his glory by suffering. And he's going to come into his glory by suffering and dying for the sins of his own people. Matthew 16:21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders. The chief priests and the teachers of the law and that he must be killed. And on the third day, he will rise to life. Again, he's not, he's not getting this out of nowhere either. He's pulling this directly from the Old Testament. Isaiah 53, verses 3-6. through 6. Again, a prophecy that's, that's looking forward to this coming Messiah. It says, He will be despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, He was despised and we held Him in low esteem. Surely He took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered Him punished by God, stricken by Him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him, and by His wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, each one of us turning to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of all. Continues in verse 11. Verse 11 and 12. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life to be sanctified. By his knowledge, my righteous service, My my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death, and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sins of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. It's the simple passage, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So here, Jesus talking to his disciples. He's pointing them towards a a different set of passages about the Messiah, what the Messiah will be like. It's the suffering servant, this one that will come, and he will bear uh, wrath. He will bear all the pain on himself on behalf of his people. Jesus is trying to point to them to say, I'm going to be way more like this suffering servant, kind of Messiah, than I'm going to be like this conquering king one. And it brings us into our text for today, but before we get there, you know, it's important to note that the conquering king one is not wrong. It's just wrong on the timeline. You know, as Christians, we believe that Jesus came and that while he was here, Jesus said he would come again. He would come again to judge the living and the dead. That's very hard to see from the Old Testament. It's very hard to see that there's a massive gap in time going on. So so these other prophecies, these other expectations, they are not wrong. It's not that the people looked at the Old Testament and they misunderstood what Jesus is like. They misunderstood what Jesus was like then. (laughs) What Messiah was like then. But that other one is still coming. We live in this really strange time. We do, you know, the writers of the New Testament do, uh, where we're living between these two moments. You know, many people call it the age of the church. You know, we, we live in between these two moments where, where Jesus has come. We've seen some of it, we've seen some of the kingdom of God breaking into the world, we've seen some of that redemption happening. But look around, it's not done, is it? I hope not. <laughs> It's not that we've seen it. A lot of of biblical scholars, they call this the already, but the not yet. I really like that. So it's already come in some ways. We've already seen Jesus. He's already died on the cross and and come back next week. Spoiler alert. uh, He will rise again. And we've already seen it, but we haven't seen it fulfilled. We haven't seen all of it. We're living in this, this time in between, and that's part of the reason why reading the New Testament is so great. Because big picture, they're living in the same time that we are. Sure, there's culture, there's other things going on, but but they're living in the same age, the same time. So let's look uh, quickly through here our text for today, which Erica read for you earlier. This is Mark 11, verses 7 through 10, and I could have picked uh, any gospel uh, to talk about Palm Sunday because all four accounts have Palm Sunday right in there, and they tell Basically the same story. Uh, We hear the story of of Jesus getting uh, a donkey that has never been ridden on before. Now this is again, you know, what do kings ride on? Typically a war horse. But kings that are riding in for peace will ride on a donkey. Generally you're riding on this war horse and it has a completely different symbolism, right? Uh, But here he is riding on this donkey, so this is important. Starting in verse 7, when they brought the colt to Jesus and threw cloaks over it, he sat on it, many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those that went ahead and those that followed him shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming king of our Father David, or coming kingdom of our Father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Let's continue looking at these, these statements that we're told that the people yell out. So, so again, a really large crowd. People are coming in for this festival. The city is growing in massive numbers. So of course, the roads are busy on the way in, and they see Jesus coming, and a, and a crowd gathers and we're told a few different things that they yell out. Hosanna simply means rescue me or save us. It's also kind of this praise statement. It comes from the Hebrew, and it's simply they're yelling rescue us, save us. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming king, kingdom of our father David. Kingdom of our Father David. That couldn't be much more clear, right? Of what they're cheering for. What kind of rescuing do they want? What kind of saving do they want? Are they talking about uh, on the cross? Eh, I think they might be prophesying without knowing it. I think, they might, I think they might be talking about something that they don't realize they're talking about. That Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. Why is he coming? Well, he's coming for their salvation. He's coming to save them. But they don't, they, they're cheering for something else. In Matthew, uh, he, has, he has slightly different things that the people say. And again, this is this huge crowd. I'm sure they were cheering many different things. I don't think this is an issue here. Uh, they're cheering many things, and the different gospel writers kind of pick out different ones with how they're telling the story. So in Matthew, they'd yell out, Hosanna to the son of David. So not only the kingdom of David, but now they're recognizing, here's the son of David, he's He's David's descendant. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Sounds familiar. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Okay, in Luke. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven. And glory in the highest. And then John. Hosanna, they cry out. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Again, pretty similar. Blessed is the king of Israel. Okay. (laughs) Let's hope no Romans are listening. (laughs) Blessed is the king of Israel. Again, they could not be any more clear on who they want this Jesus to be, what they want him to do, what they want him to accomplish when they're there. And they're just days away from Good Friday, they're just days away from this very same crowd from going from yelling save us to yelling crucify him. Just days away. And why? Because they quickly find out that he is not the kind of Messiah that they thought he was. He's not going to live into these roles, he's not going to going to lift up this army. You know, the people are looking and they're like, Jesus, where's your army? You've come here as king. You've come here as Messiah. We're ready to fight. We're ready to fight alongside you. Where's your army? Where's your where's your might? Where's your power? How are you going to overthrow this all? It's like this fight is happening even within themselves that they want Jesus, but they don't know what Jesus is like and they don't know what... What to expect. They welcome this coming liberator, but then they turn against him. So for our week ahead, for our own time ahead, it it really makes me start to think what kind of Jerusalem is our own heart this week. It's like a story of, of two Jerusalems going on here. Actually, there's even more, because then, then you have the priests that, that just want to stop this entire uh, you know, rebellion, is what they're afraid of, just to save themselves. It's, it's like through each generation, through each situation in life, inside of each person, inside of each season going on within us, it's like this battle continues. I think when we look within, we can see that this battle kind of rages on. This battle that says, that says I want the Savior, but, but then He might ask me to do things I'm uncomfortable with. And, and I can quickly just reject Him. I can say, I want part of you, Jesus. I want part of you in my life, but I don't know about in my whole life. I don't know about in my whole self. It, it maybe maybe I can be in charge. Maybe I can just compartmentalize and I can just decide which which parts I'm willing to let you into. Which parts I'm willing to say, yeah, you can be the king of that. That area, that guest bedroom over there. I'll give you the guest bedroom. Uh, I don't want you to give you the whole house. Uh, you can you can stay over there and and bless me. You know, don't get me wrong, Jesus. I want you to bless me. I want you to. To be with me, I want my life to turn out well. I want you to bless my children, bless everyone around me. Uh, but how about you just stay in the guest room? Uh, how about you leave me uh, on the throne <laughs> and, and you just kind of stay over there be, be, and be a good advisor, Jesus? That would be awfully nice. This is not me suggesting this, by the way. If you're, if you're getting a little, you're like, Pastor said, uh, I, can, I can put Jesus in the guest room, please. Don't quote me on that part, but we do this inside, don't we? If we're honest, if we're—I mean, if we're not honest, I guess it's really easy to say, "Oh no, I've made Jesus both both my savior and my king." Oh yeah, that is great language. You know, savior certainly died on the cross for me, love it. King of my life, yeah, he lives in the best in the guest room, yeah. Uh, king of my life, you know, is he in charge? Is he really the one doing, it, or am I, am I even holding back areas? And I'm like. Oh, Jesus, I'll let you in most of the house, but you know that one closet over there, you don't want to go in there. Even you, Jesus, don't want, don't want to see these whole parts of my life. I've told this story before, and my, my son Levi, who's downstairs right now, he gets a kick out of it. But, but when he was little, he's older now, but when he was little, like preschool age, um, if you were to invite him over to your house, at some point he's going to disappear. You know, Susan and I, we were good house guests. We knew our role. You would invite us into your house. We'd sit in the living room. If we were, you know, if you were in the kitchen, maybe we'd offer to help. You know, we knew how to be good guests. We used the guest bathroom. You know, the whole deal. Levi, as a preschooler, he would explore your house. There was once he was at someone's house and he found like a little cabinet that they didn't know existed in their own house. I mean, he's... I mean, we didn't, like, encourage it. You know, he was being age-appropriate. It wasn't the worst thing ever. Uh, But he was curious. He was a curious little boy. So he would go around. And he would find all the places, all the cabinets, all the cupboards, the places you were comfortable with him being in and the places you maybe were not so comfortable with him being in. I think a lot of us, we're a little more comfortable if Jesus is like Susan and I. <laughs> eh, stay in the living room. Do your thing. Be a good house guest. You know, yeah, we'll invite you in. We'll invite you into our heart. We want you in our heart, but you know, let's let's not find any cabinets I didn't know existed. You know, let's let's not expose everything going on here. But the good news is, or the great news is, that, that Jesus is is light when he comes in. There is no dark spaces in your house if he's filled the whole thing. He's, he's the light himself as he goes around, as, as he exposes different areas, and that happens in your life. I don't know if you've experienced this, but you, you think you're doing all right, and then Jesus exposes a new area. And you're like, oh, yeah, I have been holding on to that. I have been bitter about this or bitter about that thing. But, but as he exposes it, it's not to, not to shame. It's not to show you this dark corner and say, look how terrible this is. He's bringing his light everywhere he goes. So, so as we enter into this holy week, that is my prayer for you all, that, that we'd be able to enter in and we'd just be, have some awareness of, of what kind of Jerusalem are we right now within. Which, which one are we? Are we cheering for it? but we're kind of cheering in this weird way that really it's like we're cheering for the Jesus we think we want? Uh, or are we afraid? Are we afraid to, to have him explore all of it? Or are we afraid of what this might mean? That, that, that what if we actually give him control? What, if, what does that mean in our own lives? Are we more like the Pharisees that were terrified of what Jesus was going to say? What Jesus was going to do, what it was going to mean to their way of life? Or are we willing to just surrender control? Are we willing to just, just give up and realize we have made terrible kings of our own lives? Adam and Eve tried it. <laughs> Way back then. that They tried to be the, the ruler of their own life, the king of their own life, and it failed brutally. And it has failed in every generation, in every person Sense then. We try to be in control, and it doesn't take very long before we realize we're not good at this. I wasn't good at it in elementary school. I wasn't good at it in junior high, Lord knows that. I wasn't good at it as I got older, and I got it never got better when, when John was in charge. It doesn't go well. You know, it's true in all of our lives. When we're the king of our own lives, it doesn't go well. But when we are able to surrender, when we say, Jesus, not only, not only as Savior, but also as Lord, that's how I need you. I need you in every aspect. I need to, to lean on you and not lean on myself. Then there's truly hope, and there's truly uh, this place so that we can finally rest and we can finally be with.